This is the non-microwave truth, a time of grace production, and I am CL Whiteside. Some people have asked me, like, hey, can I get on the podcast with you sometime? And I'm like, nope. At least right not right now. I have one mic, one chair, one microphone. And nobody's sitting on my lap. Well, I guess my my wife, my woman can come sit on my lap, but she's not really about that podcast life. But let me give out a couple quick shout outs. Shout out to Pastor Shoopy, who looks over my stuff, makes sure that I'm making sure that I'm biblically sound. Every once in a while, I have some errors because you get to talking too fast and mixing up different things in the Bible. Can't be doing that, though. Uh, shout out to Nia. I think there's somebody named Mandy, too, who reviews my stuff. I don't even know who Mandy is, but thank you, Mandy. But enough of that. Let's jump into our first world problem today. Jesus. Yeshua. Did he look like Mary or did he look like no one? Or, you know, God is so cool and has such a humor that he could have made him look like Joseph, even though Joseph wasn't his biological father. Because don't forget, he was conceived by God, but born from Mary. That boy looked like Mary. He looked just like Mary. He got Mary forehead. He got Mary nose. That boy looked like Mary. Mm-mm. He don't look like any of them to me. You know, he actually looks kind of like Clifford. Who is Clifford? Clifford, you know, the other carpenter from down the street. Mary swears it was a miraculous pregnancy and she wasn't out here being fast. But what you think? It probably was that Clifford. Look at him. He got, not really, he got Clifford chin and face. <laughs> but no, I'm just playing with y'all. But who do you think Jer Jesus looked like? Do you think God had him look like Mary? Did he, did he mix up Mary and Joseph or did he allow Jesus to look like no one? I will tell you this, though. No other man impregnated Mary. It was God. Yep, it was God. Pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Check that out. That's in Matthew, the first chapter. But I just thought about this because do you look like your parents? I think I look like a combination of my mom and dad. But some people I have seen, they look just like one of the parents. And every blue moon... I see someone who doesn't look like either parent, but they might look like an aunt or an uncle. What do you think was the case with Jesus? Like, what did God do? Like, did he allow Jesus to look like Mary at all? Or did he make Jesus look like no one? And this is our first word problem. This isn't heaven or hell. This really doesn't matter. But just curious. What do you think? Remember, you can hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. ChampionLife23 is my handle. We'd love to hear from you. This is our first world problem. Did Jesus look like his mom, his stepdad, Joseph, or did he look like no one? It's time to eat. It's dinner time. The title of this episode is The Parent Study. Geico has a bunch of commercials where they make fun of people for turning into their mom or dad and acting just like them. And on a lot of these commercials, they're trying to refrain from acting just like their parents and remaining young or remaining cool. But man, a lot of our characteristics come from our parents because DNA is real. Like DNA is real. I see myself doing some things I'm like, dang, I was just like my dad. Dang, that was just like my mom. It's like my brother and I have a competition on who can mock our dad the best. We even have my nephews in on it. 
And what I've noticed has happened at times is we're low-key playing, but we're mocking him. So we sound just like him. And it's like semi-serious. So we know that DNA, we know that our environment, but we also have to look at the fact that the way our parents love us, shape us into who we are today. And parental love is just something to look at. Parental love is unique. You know, you hear stories about mothers lifting cars off of their baby or or they're trapped under the car and they get this super strength. Or, you know, parents, the opposite end with crazy stuff like parents fighting other kids because their kid got messed with by that kid. Or something that I see every once in a while, parents lying for their kids. Or I shouldn't say necessarily lying. Sometimes parents just leave out the whole truth because they want to protect their kid at any cost. And something that we just have to be aware of is that our parents project stuff on us at times and we don't even know it. Like they literally are forming or shaping our mind and they're projecting something on us and we're not aware of it. And I see this a good amount of times when I coach and parents are confused to why their son got cut or they want to have a meeting about playing time. And it's like, what's to talk about? Like your son gets it. But I want to know why he got cut or is not playing. And it's like, all right, we can have this meeting. And what happens is we usually talk to the parents and we have the the son in there as well. And the kid can understand better than the parent on why they aren't playing. But then when you hear parents talk, sometimes they like they have different traumas and they project that on their kids. And something that I've heard is like, man, I, I know y'all play politics. I already know. I went to a school like this and, you know, I got cut from the basketball team because they play politics there and they pick their favorites and you had to know somebody or it had to be in the family. And I just know how it is. And it's like, oh, I get it. You're taking your situation, you're taking your problem and you're projecting and automatically guessing that that's the same situation that's happening in your kid's life. And what happens when our traumas, um, we feel like went unattended or we didn't have somebody to support us in that trauma or that, that thing that we got treated the wrong way. We want to make sure and protect our kid and be like, nah, this is not happening to my kid. This is definitely not happening to my kid. I might've got messed over, but I'd be dogged if this happened to my kid. And parents project this on their kids automatically. Or there have been times that kids share information with their parents and their parents take it completely the wrong way. Like I have an instance that comes to mind where a student was just sharing with their parent like, hey, this happened. And the parent is like flipping out and they're like, I got to talk to you right now. I got to talk to you and I want to talk to this person. I'm like, "Okay." And then the kid is like, yeah, this is not a big deal, mom. This is not a big deal, dad. But the parent is irate. And what I'm looking at and the more I hear the parent talk, I'm just like, man, who hurt you? Because this is not that like this is not even a comparable situation. But in that parent's mind at the time, it is. And if you you kind of have to be a special kid sometimes and you have to be a, a unique person to understand your parents love for you sometimes and their traumas sometimes get passed down to you because they haven't healed properly. And if they haven't healed properly or the trauma is just that forceful and it was that impactful in their life, they definitely, because they love you so much, want to make sure that doesn't happen to you. But in some cases, it does the exact opposite. Certain traumas scar them and then it allows it makes them scar the the child because hurt people hurt people. Because the microwave truth on a lot of these situations is that the world tells you you have to protect your family, especially your kids. 
But sometimes, you know what? They don't need protection. They need the non-microwave truth. They need the loving truth. And sometimes it's okay for that child to, to fail. It's okay for that child to fall. Now, if someone, of course, is abusing them or doing something crazy to them, by all means, step in. But you shouldn't want someone to always step in to try to make something easy for you because that we know that that damages a person, too. And what I'm talking about is someone got cut from the team. A parent doesn't need to run to the rescue for that. Didn't get the part in the play. Or didn't get the job. That's life. People get to be 25, 30 years old and they're still playing the victim. They're still saying that someone messed them over when in reality, sometimes we just got to be better. But they're used to their parent bailing them out. And that's where that source of entitlement comes from that we see in a lot of um, Generation Z and millennials today. I'm in that category, too, by the way. So I'm not just taking shots at you. But running to the rescue all the time, that's a problem. But then you have on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have those parents who are so hurt, but they don't even feel like they're hurt. And in fact, they feel like they've used their hurt and it's made them better because their parents talked to them and were abusive verbally. All of a sudden, they're verbally abusive to their kids. Or parents who didn't have the support and had to lie and cheat, they pass that down to their kids that by any means necessary, get it. So if that means lying and cheating, you do it. Or parents who really don't even know how to be a parent because they didn't have a parent there for them. They didn't have a parent there to discipline them. They didn't have a parent to love them in the way they wanted to be loved. And what happens a lot of times is, especially with these groups of parents, they look at themselves and they say, hey, I turned out all right. All that bad stuff actually made me. It actually made me better when in reality it didn't. They don't even see the scars that they have. They don't even see the bruises that they have. They don't see the marks that that's left in their life and how that trickles down to their kids. And all of us should have a desire to do better than our parents and our grandparents. But you can't do better if you don't see the problem. And generational curses are beyond real. And this just didn't start yesterday or a couple generations ago. This has started from the beginning of time. And on this episode of the parent study, I want to look at Abraham to start off with. And I want to go all the way to Joseph. And this is like Genesis chapter 16 through the rest of the, the book of Genesis. This would be four generations worth of information kind of summed up just studying this particular family. Like how well do you know your family? How, how far can you trace back? Do you know your parents really well? Do you know what makes them tick? Do you know the things that they did well? Do you know your grandparents? Do you know your great grandparents? Do you personally know your parents' traumas and your grandparents' traumas and see how some of those things might be projected on you? Do you know, do you know your parents' curses or sins, I should say, that could have a trickle-down effect to you where all of a sudden your view on life goes against what God says and what God's word says? Because A, they either taught you wrong or B, it's a wound that has never been healed properly and is infected. And if you know something about certain infections, certain infections can spread. And see, we have to realize that there are certain temptations that we are more susceptible to fail into because of the way that we're wired. But if we know that our parents overcame them already, we can learn from them and take that as a positive and say, all right, they did it this way. We got the same DNA. I probably need to attack this the same way as well. 
or look and see like, dang, they failed. I need to move differently. Okay. Now, the first two generations that I want to look at in this family are Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife, and then their son and his wife, Isaac and Rebecca. Now, there are two similarities that strike me right away. Abraham and Sarah struggled big time to have a child. Isaac and Rebecca are also in the same boat. They struggled big time to have a child. But there is something I feel like Isaac learned from watching his parents. And that was, I'm not going to have any baby mama drama. Because when you look at Abraham and Sarah, when they weren't able to have a child, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And they wanted to help God out, even though God promised them a child. Sarah was getting up in age like, hey, I'm, I need to have a kid. So what Sarah did to try to help God out is say, hey, Abraham, you can have my, my servant. This is in Genesis 16. Sarah says to Abraham, go sleep with my slave and maybe I can build my family through her. Crazy. But then if you look at this or if you read Genesis chapter 21, she's already tired of Hagar and she's ready to kick her out the house because she becomes jealous. So that's baby mama drama. That's something that Isaac and Rebecca avoided. Isaac and Rebecca had no baby mama drama. Isaac had one woman. He got only one woman pregnant. Abraham, on the other hand, he had multiple women that got pregnant. So that was a great example of a generation learning from the previous generation and saying, hey, I'm going to be better than my parent. But then here's another striking similarity. Both Isaac and his father, they married some baddies. Like they married some good looking women. Beautiful. And like father, like son, they both went to different countries. And because they went to these other countries, they were fearful that the men there or the king there was like, I will kill you if I find out this is your actual wife. So they both lied and said, these are my sisters. So this happened to Isaac's mom. And then Isaac does this with his own wife. Neither one of them trust God to take care of that situation or trust God to keep their wives safe. And in both cases, they both lie and say that their beautiful looking wives are their sisters. And it's the same outcome where the king is like, dude, what are you doing? Like I or one of my men could have taken them. All you had to do was just tell me this was your your wife. But they were they were both fearful in that way. So that was another striking similarity. And I'm guessing that never came up at the family dinner where Abraham was like, hey, Isaac, you know, your mom was fine. She had it going on. But it was this time I, I lied and said she was my sister. And, you know, that the king from Gerar sent for her and took her and that was a whole mess. So, yeah, if you ever pull a baddie, son, make sure you let everybody know this is your woman. I'm guessing that conversation didn't happen. And if it did, shame on Isaac. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit, though. Isaac and Rebecca, they have two children. They have twins, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. So now we're on the third generation. And something that jumps out right away is that Isaac and Rebecca had favorite kids like Isaac's favorite was Esau and Rebecca's favorite was Jacob. And I'm like, did this come because like did Isaac think a favorite was OK because he was like the chosen son of Abraham and Sarah? And even though he had a half brother, that half brother got sent away with his mother. That obviously wasn't Sarah. So I'm like, did he in his mind think it was OK to have a favorite? 
of course, having a favorite that that damages children big time, especially when you show it in this obvious. And of course, Jacob has a missing piece in his heart because his, he doesn't have his father's love. He, he's lacking it. He's missing it. And Esau, on the other hand, he he's lacking his mother's love. So we see what Esau Esau ends up marrying multiple godless women. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob is sent to go find a God fearing woman. Now, the thing that seems to be consistent with Jacob when you compare him to his dad, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham, is that he will bend the truth or he will flat out lie in order to protect himself or get what he wants. We saw that Abraham and Isaac lied about their wives being their sister. We see that Jacob manipulates his brother to get the blessing from Esau, since Esau was older, the firstborn. They're supposed to get a blessing. And then he flat out lies and deceives his father by dressing as Esau in order to get the birthright. Oh, yeah. And he does this with his mother's help. She helped him scheme. And this is in chapter 27 of Genesis. And I think I said earlier that Jacob is missing something or, or his heart is hurting because he doesn't have his father's love. And the reason I say this is he can't even go to his father and be himself. He literally has to dress up and try to act like Esau, in order to get his father's love, in order to get his father's blessing and birthright. Like, he knows that Esau is his dad's favorite. That's got to suck, though. And Jacob and Esau, unlike their father, they both end up having multiple wives. A.K.A. baby mama drama is in full effect. Now, Jacob's situation is a little different because his parents send him away to go find a wife. But part of that is the fact that he's running because he's afraid Esau is going to kill him because he stole the birthright and the blessing from his big brother. Or I should say older brother by maybe a couple of minutes. And what we see is Jacob, the trickster or the manipulator, gets tricked and manipulated in Genesis chapter 29. He sees this baddie, this beautiful woman named Rachel and is like, oh, we I got to have her. And he works up this deal with the father to work for seven years. After seven years, you know what the father does, though? He gives him the older sister named Leah. And instead of Jacob saying, no, uh-uh, he goes ahead and says, you know what? I'll work another seven years. That's crazy. He worked 14 years for this woman. Boy, that's, I mean, what am I to say? I worked like 15, 16, 17 years for my beautiful bride, too. Ish. But anyways, Jacob has multiple wives. That's microwaving the truth. And like his grandpa Abraham, he runs into the same problems. The woman that he really didn't even want to marry, she's popping out kids left and right. So what does that mean? That's Leah. That means the wife that he really loves, Rachel. She's depressed. She's she's crying out because she's struggling to have kids. So what does she do? What does Rachel do with her awesome wisdom? Sarcasm. She does just like her grandmother-in-law, Sarah, and says, you know what, Jacob, you can have sex with my servant and I can build my family through her. Yep, she gets pregnant and he has a kid by her. Not a good idea. Jacob should have been like, hold up, wait a minute. We can just wait on the Lord. I don't need any more drama, any more headaches, any more people complaining. But he gives in. Oh, yeah. And then when Leah can't pop him out fast enough, she says, you can have my servant, too. And he ends up getting this other servant pregnant as well. OK, and now we're to the last generation that I want to talk about today. So Jacob 
and his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their two servants, they end up having a total of 13 kids. Jacob has 13 children. One of them is a girl. The other, that's 12 boys. That's a lot of boys. That's, that's a football team right there. Now, you would think that Jacob would know how to love each child for their uniqueness and differences because he wasn't his father's favorite. So he should know the hurt that that caused him. He should know that void in the hole that left in his heart. So what ends up happening, like it does in a lot of cases in our world today and in our culture and society, is that his trauma was projected on his children. And how we see this is the fact that he had a favorite son whose name was Joseph, and he treated this son completely different. This is the son of the wife that he really loved, which is Rachel. He gave this son a special coat. He gave him special privileges. And he just it was obvious, like this is his favorite child. And what did that do with all the other children? It made them hate this Joseph. This made them despise Joseph. This made them get to the point where they wanted to kill Joseph. But instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. So when you look at that, Jacob did not learn in this way. And this is a great example of him projecting on his children and in the long run, causing them some some pain and some suffering because if you look at Joseph's life, and this is one of my favorite biblical characters and people to, to study and look at, and we're not going to do that today, but he caused Joseph a lot of heartache, a lot of um, trauma in his life, and a lot of, um, uh, he, he caused him to be on a very, very tough path. So it caused a bunch of his sons to be envious and jealous and almost to the point ready to murder. Then it caused Joseph to be arrogant and prideful. And faced some major hardships. There was no parent study. And I'm guessing Jacob hated the fact that his dad did not love him in the way that he wanted to be loved. And that his dad had a favorite in his brother Esau. And what we got to realize with this is just because we hate characteristics of our parents or of other family members, that doesn't stop us from copying them. Especially because, you know, DNA is real and generational curses are real. And then we end up not liking or hating ourselves because we copied something. And we didn't realize that just because we hated that characteristic, that didn't stop us from copying it. We have to be intentional about avoiding that and repeating that behavior. And we didn't learn from it. Like we didn't heal that wound. We didn't address that issue. And something I really want to get you thinking about, because we've been talking about on this episode of the parent study of examining our, our family members and examining our parents especially. And as important as it is to know our our earthly parents, man, it's even more important to know our spiritual heavenly father and look at what the father does for us and what our relationship should look like with him. Because, you know, our, our father is the one who, our heavenly father is the one who's, who's planned everything, who's all-knowing, who's holy, who's perfect. And a lot of times we're just like those rebellious teenage children because some of us are just flat out. We're angry with with our Heavenly Father. We're angry with his plan. We're angry with the fact that we don't think he's fair. Or we don't think that he's a, a just God or a provider, but he's so loving and he's so gracious. And it's hard for us to to have even a, a slight understanding of him or a slight respect if we don't get to know him. And the only way you really get to know the Heavenly Father is by getting in the word. So especially if you are like, you know what, I'm angry with God or I don't understand God. 
you have to get into the word. You have to get into the word because it's hard to get to know him. And the best way I'm going to say it again is through the Bible and through prayer. And it's in that order. Because I hear a lot of people say I'm praying and I pray about it. But you can't just pray if you don't even know who you're praying to. Like your God might be something that you actually created. And it's not the God of the Bible. It's not Yahweh. And it's like you created a new parent. And it's so easy for us to understand that a five-year-old is not going to understand everything that a parent does. But do you realize that we're the five-year-olds when we talk about our Heavenly Father? Like he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's everywhere. But yet we expect to understand every single thing that he's doing? Like why, why do you think, why would I think that I could understand a perfect, perfect God? Like, I, I don't understand that. Of course, there are some things that he does that I don't understand. But that's where getting to know him comes into play. Because when I look at the word and I look at how God has worked in my life, I can see that he clearly has a plan. I can clearly see that he's all knowing. I can clearly see that he's a holy and perfect God. I can clearly see that he's fair and he he just he's a just and he's a provider. and He's provided for me in so many different ways. But if I don't look at the word, then I don't know him. And not only do I not understand him, but I don't even trust his plan. Like, forget his plan. Then. But like I said, this is a parent study that we all need to have, not just with our earthly parents, but more importantly, with our heavenly father. And when you get in the word too, what we see is Jesus is is definitely our savior, but he's also like our brother. And something that we don't realize sometimes is that all children question parents at times. Have you ever found yourself saying, why would God do this or why did God allow this to happen? Jesus did that in a way, too, but he did it in a respectful way. And he did it in a way where he was building a relationship with the father and he was one with the father. You know, one of the things that, that comes to mind when Jesus was in the garden praying and he asked, was there another way? Could this cup be taken from me? And another time I think about when he's on the cross and he yells, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when I look at those instances, it's crazy and obvious how much our Heavenly Father loves us. And I'm going to leave you with two big takeaways today. The first one being, when you study and examine your parents, use the Bible as the guide for right and wrong. Definitely pray about it. And also, don't be afraid to seek actual counsel. Because there are some traumas that need um, an area of expertise on how to heal and how to handle them. And the second takeaway I want you to have today is... There has to be a parent study done on our Heavenly Father. You have to see who he is. You have to see what he reveals to you. And that only comes through his word. And this is the non-microwave truth. Thanks for joining me on our episode of The Parent Study. And don't forget, you can hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. My handle is championlife23. Let me know what you're thinking. Peace punch, Captain Crunch. Stay no to drugs and yes to Jesus. I'm out.